Today on Maine Calling, the enormous role of family caregivers. Every few years, AARP releases an in-depth report about the impact of family caregivers. The most recent came out today. It shows that in Maine, 166,000 people are providing unpaid care to another person, more than one in 10 Mainers. The report values that care as worth $2.9 billion. I'm Jennifer Rooks. Today on Maine Calling, we will discuss the implications of those numbers. Do these caregivers have the training and support they need? How does it affect one's career to care for a loved one? More broadly, what's the impact on the Maine workforce? And where can caregivers turn for support? How did the pandemic affect the landscape of care for older Mainers? Maine Calling is just ahead. Maine Calling On Demand is made possible by listeners and by Maine Seacoast Mission, strengthening Maine's coastal and island communities through education, health, and support. Learn more at seacoastmission.org. And by Welch and Forbes, working with clients to manage the full range of events that come with building wealth, from investments to trustee services. More welchforbes.com. I'm Jennifer Rooks, and this is Maine Calling. Putting out a price on how much family caregivers do for the care of loved ones is pretty much impossible, but AARP has given it a shot. Today, we're going to discuss a just-released report by AARP about caregivers at all levels of the healthcare system and how to support caregivers in Maine caring for loved ones. With us today, Noelle Bonham, who is State Director for AARP Maine, and Brenda Gallant, Executive Director of Maine's long-term care ombudsman program. We invite you to join the conversation. Tell us about your experience as a caregiver. Tell us what you need. Our phone number, 1-800-399-3566. You can send a brief email to talk at mainpublic.org or find us on social media. Noel, my understanding is that AARP has not done this report since 2019, which strikes me that this report takes the pandemic into account and all of the domino effect impacts that we've had in our life and in our society from that. So I'm wondering if you can sort of start the program by giving us the basics. What did AARP find about the role of family caregivers and how did it differ from that report in 2019? Um, Thank you, Jennifer. The uh, The report itself is called Valuing the Invaluable because ARP believes that the, the care that family caregivers you know, provide to their loved ones is truly invaluable. It is a, a group of um, um, individuals, um, you know, group of Americans that we advocate for regularly because they're often ignored or we don't really see the value as a society in the amount of work that goes into caregiving for a family caregiver. So this is it's a report that we do every few years. And like you mentioned, we haven't done one in, since 2019. So this is new and it does include some of the, 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 the impact of the pandemic on caregiving itself. It looks at the number of family caregivers, the hours that family caregivers provide to their loved ones in the state, 
the value, the economic value of such caregiving. Um, so this recent one, hot off the press, as 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 they say, as of this morning, um, you know, um, has about one hundred and sixty six thousand caregivers and family caregivers in Maine. That's a significant number for our state. You know, we have about less than one point four million people, and one hundred and sixty six thousand of them are family caregivers. And you know, and that you know, they make up for about one hundred and fifty five million hours of caregiving in an in, in a year. That, that you know, and and when you look at the the value, if you were to look at um, the hourly wage, in which we think in Maine is you know roughly around for family caregiving, it's about just under nineteen dollars. The total value, economic value of caregiving in Maine that family caregivers give, not come being compensated in any way, you know, um, is about two point nine billion dollars. So that's kind of like the very right. brief high level context. The, sna the snapshot. Let me ask you that. When we talk about uh, 166,000 caregivers in Maine, does that include parents or is this uh, people who are caring for somebody who's older or both? It, both. Um, in fact, um, later on, I'd love, would love to talk about how the sandwich generation is taking care of their, their, you know, their offspring, their kids, younger, you know, siblings, and also taking care of their parents because you know the 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 age of when people have their first child has shifted dramatically over the past few decades and so people are having their first child when they're much older than they did a few decades ago Brenda from your experience working with people who are uh, caregivers so many for so many years tell me who they are and what I mean by that is are these people who, have to take in or feel as though they have to take in or care for a loved one because there is no other place for them? Are these people who feel like they want to care for their loved one and don't want them to be going into a long-term care facility? Paint us a picture of what the situation is in Maine and what the reality is on the ground. Okay, what a good question. What we find uh, through the work of the Ombudsman Program is that there's a tremendous dedication of family caregivers that for the most part, they do it really because they they have a real concern and caring about the individual. They wanna keep a loved one at home for as long as possible. So I've seen amazing um, situations where people try to work um, and then also provide care with support. So it's really about, I think the dedication of families and it's just incredible. I can think of a woman that I worked with who uh, worked full-time, um, had home care services coming in, would be up at night taking care of her husband, kept him at home for many years until he eventually required nursing home care. But it was very important to her to keep him at home. So we see this consistently. We've worked with families recently, um, a group of family members taking care of their mom at home with dementia. Um, and it was really three or four members working together um, trying their best to provide care. She was receiving home care services. We worked with this family to increase the home care services that she was receiving to, in order to give them better support. So generally speaking, I think people, it's really about devotion, caring, and we've just met some terrific people doing this mm. work. Uh, no, Noel, are there more people who need care today than just four years ago? And are there enough people to care for them? 
Um, I'll answer the latter part first. Uh, there aren't enough people to care for the, the people who really need the care in our state. I mean, we know that um, the, we've had a shortage of um, uh, caregivers in our state, direct caregivers, um, um, uh, direct care workers. And, and going back to your earlier point about, you know, has the pandemic has, what kind of influence it has had on caregiving, a lot of the issues that exist exist today have existed for quite some time, and I think the the, the pandemic actually has um, uh, has highlighted some of the challenges and the issues, and in some cases exaggerated the challenge even more. Um, you know, the 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 scarcity of direct care workers is one of those uh, issues which has you know has become far worse. And, and and also I kind of want to connect one other tiny bit that Brenda mentioned, in addition to the challenges that Brenda mentioned as to why people want to keep take care of their loved ones and keep them at home, there's also the challenge of cost involved for direct caregiving, right? And and so um, the, um, um, I, I, the bottom line is um, they are, we need a lot more caregivers in our state. We need a lot more direct caregivers in our state. They need to be paid better so that they can actually come to the workforce to provide care. And and the number of people who need care is, or actually I'm going to rephrase that a little bit. I'll say the number of people that are being cared for by the caregivers has actually, you know, has gone up because they're doing taking care of younger family members and also older family members. Brenda, one thing... I wonder is no matter how much goodwill somebody might have, no matter no matter how much they care for their loved one, how qualified are most of us to care for a loved one who has medical problems? Oh, that's another great question. Because um, what we find in working with family members is that often they're required or out of necessity, they're doing what would traditionally be nursing tasks. And this can be very difficult. So we've worked with families around getting RN services in when that isn't possible. Uh, we've helped them to get training either from their physician's office or from the home care agency. So this is true nationally as well as in Maine that often family members are really in a situation where they're performing tasks that are you know, like catheterization, uh, managing feeding tubes and a number of other sort of skilled level uh, care um, necessities that they have to do in order to keep somebody at home. So it's really important that we get support to people um, with respect to training and nursing when, when it's available. That's a, that's a lot of pressure. Oh, it is. Um, really, family members need every bit of support that they can have, whether it's through home care services, nursing services, uh, information and support from advocacy programs when there are barriers to care. It's, it's very important that we support family caregivers because it is a very intensive um, kind of effort that they have to do. Oftentimes they have to work outside the home as well as providing care. As I said, they may have to do nursing tasks that they haven't had any training for. And it can be a very lonely, isolating and difficult um, thing that they have to do, and they really do need information and support from outside um, in order to attend to their own needs and be able to carry out what they need to do for a loved one. Noel, and, and and there is a significant cost to caregiving, 
right? I mean, it's not just the financial aspect. It's not just the emotional burden of taking uh, taking care of a loved one, which most people actually do it willingly. They want to be the one taking care of their family member than any other person, right? But there's also the 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 the, the cost of to opportunity. I mean, because you are taking care of a loved one, you're giving up so many other opportunities, you know, the, the social opportunity, the, the civic opportunity, you know, because you have to really dedicate your time to being available for your loved one. There's also the, the, the cost to one's health, one's well-being. And often we don't think about all of these other aspects when it comes to caregiving. A caregiver often is dedicating most of their non-working, non-professional time taking care of their loved one. And that's another really important aspect to consider and keep in mind. Noelle, as we're having this conversation, I'm thinking of some recent conversations we've had on Maine Calling. Uh, one, a recurring conversation with uh, Maine State Economist Amanda Rector and others about how Maine's work, we don't have enough workers or employees in pretty much every sector from healthcare to teachers to bus drivers to uh, manufacturing. And at the same time, I'm thinking about a conversation we had just a couple weeks ago with Maine hospital leaders who said there are people staying in the hospital, many, many people staying in hospitals in Maine because there is not the capacity in nursing homes to take them, that some nursing homes are even running at less than 50% because of staffing issues, which makes me think, are family caregivers, for example, giving up careers to care for loved ones because there is no place for those loved ones in a nursing home or a long-term care facility. And then in turn, if that person is giving up a job or career, is that one more person out of the main workforce? I mean, is this one of these, it seems to me from what you're telling me today in the recent conversations we've had, that this is a snowballing and cascading issue. Absolutely, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, something that ARP says repeatedly, and I'm going to say that again now a statement is that family caregivers are truly the backbone of our long term care system in this country, period. I mean, they truly are. And, but speaking to the snowball effect that you're talking about, it's true. And if you don't have a paid family and medical leave, uh, you know, program in, in our state, then many of our caregivers are having to choose between work and and taking care of their loved ones in times when we do not have enough caregiving opportunities. Nursing homes are closing down. People are staying in hospitals longer because you know, there aren't nursing homes they could send them to. So everything that you just mentioned, right? So it, it, it is all connected. And I think we really need to look at an, an innovative but important timely program to respond to that need in addition to the workforce development. And when jobs, you know, caregiving is really, really tough. And especially if you're going into that profession as a professional, I think we really need to also look at, you know, what kind of supports care direct care workers get and how they're being compensated. And Brenda Gallant, I introduced you as Maine's long-term care ombudsman. What what does that mean? What do you do? What are you able to do for people who are listening to this program who are long-term caregivers? Okay, thank you for asking that question. So the Ombudsman program is a statewide advocacy program for older adults and adults with disabilities who either need or are receiving long-term services and supports. And we assist um, people in nursing homes, residential care, 
assisted living, and we also uh, serve home care consumers. And really any, any issue at all with respect to access to care, whether it's a name care issue, payment, quality of services, really any problem at all, uh, family members can come to us, care recipients can come to us, and our services are free and confidential. And we do amazing things. And I'll just give you a few examples of some work we've done uh, to help um, healthcare recipients and their family members. So um, I mentioned the family that needed more care to keep their mom at home with dementia. We also helped a family find an RN who couldn't find one through a home care agency. We helped them write an ad, place the ad, and then worked with them on once they selected an RN to be an independent contractor, we worked with the Department of Health and Human Services provider relations, um, excuse me, relations to get a contract for the RN to be able to provide services to keep this individual at home. We work with legal services for the elderly and disability rights Maine when people get a denial, a reduction or termination in home care services, we file an appeal. We work on merit with these legal services agencies to help people retain services. So it sounds um, like if you hit a snag, call you. Yes, yes. <laughs> and also throughout the process, we give a lot of support to family members and reassure them that they're not alone, that we will remain with them throughout the process of problem resolution. And that's just so important because people are just so lost sometimes when things go wrong with long-term services and supports. Um, and if I just could comment earlier, to, when you talked about access to nursing home care, we're really seeing in the ombudsman program, we work with people um, that need uh, long-term services and supports in a nursing home or residential care uh, when they're ready for discharge. Uh, we're seeing an uptick in referrals with respect to that. And people are coming to us um, with uh, needing assistance with placement in a facility where many nursing homes are limiting admission because of staffing issues. So it's a real concern right now with respect to uh, the lack of um, really finding enough uh, direct care workers. Well, we have so many calls coming in. If you want to be one of them, our phone number 1-800-399-3566. We'll be right back. This is Bain Calling. Welcome back. This is Maine Calling. I'm Jennifer Rooks. Our topic today, Maine's family caregivers and where they can help turn for help for their aging loved ones. With me today, Brenda Gallant, who is Executive Director of the Maine Long-Term Care Ombudsman Program and AARP State Director Noel Bonham. Share your comments and questions via email, a brief email, please. Talk at mainepublic.org. Comment on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or give us a call at 1-800-399-3566. We'll go to Katrina calling from Camden. Hi, Katrina. Go ahead. Well, good morning. What a wonderful show that's so necessary uh, because Maine has one of the highest populations of elderly. And in some countries, uh, the families, of course, take care of their elders. It's not a question. It's a practice. And in our country, unfortunately, the elders are considered disposable, even when they put in writing that they want to age in place, which means to stay in their own home. Uh, there are unscrupulous family members that will put them uh, in nursing homes and their assets go to main care. Because it, once you run out of the $12,000 a month 
uh, for a nursing home, you're on main care. Main care takes your assets if you die within five years. And so, yeah, it's a financial problem. It's an ethical problem. And I'm thrilled to hear that you're addressing it today. Uh, and God bless the caregivers in Maine who actually do care about their uh, elderly uh, family members. And we should all be uh, do the best that we can for them and stop allowing this highway robbery by Maine care. It's unscrupulous. Thank Katrina. you, Jennifer. Thank you for your call. And I'll turn to you, Brenda, because I heard a national story about this issue, about how um, family members are um, in different states, but apparently a federal law are asked to recoup uh, the cost of care. What can you tell us about this? What can people expect here in Maine and how to prepare for that? Well, what I can tell you is there is a state recovery. So if people are cared for um, in a long-term care facility, that once that person has received the care, that they will recoup the funds from the, the uh, individual's estate. And I'm really, this is not my area of expertise, but that is a reality. And it's been in place for several years. Noel, is there anything you want to add to that? No, except to echo what Katrina said that, you know, uh, God bless America's caregivers because there's so many and doing it because it needs to get done and do it, you know, wholeheartedly. I mean, you know, when we talk to working family caregivers, four out of 10, four of, you know, four in 10 cite emotional stress of balancing work and caregiving as their biggest challenge and they still do it. We'll go to Robbie calling from New Gloucester. Hi, Robbie, go ahead. Hi, I can actually speak directly to what was just said about the um, balance trying to maintain work and take care of your loved ones. I'm a care partner to my husband. He has um, no longer speaks, no longer walks, and needs 100% care. And I've just like been barely hanging on to try to have a remote job, thankfully. And I just um, went down from 30 hours, now I'm 15 hours a week, because sometimes the grief is so unbearable. I can't even concentrate. And all I want to do is care for him. I want to take care of him. Um, I want to take care of all his needs. I will never put him in a facility. But learning about the system, I can see how that is what's usually paid for. I'm just trying to find out if I can get paid as a, par as a caregiver. And what I've been told so far is that, that his Social Security, like we don't even qualify. And so it's been very frustrating Um for me, and we have been directed more towards hospice services now because they said that's where I can get the best care and to get support, which I am getting, thankfully. But it has been very difficult. Uh, Brenda, would you like to help Robbie out a little bit? Well, I think she could call my office, 1-800-499-0229, and we would be very glad to talk with her and see how we can help. So. And our services are free and confidential. And the staff really know uh, long-term services and supports very well. We'll do whatever we can to support her and help her through this these concerns. Yeah, and Robbie, good luck to you. Um, it sounds like you really, really have a lot on your plate. It, it sounds very difficult. I appreciate you calling in today and sharing your story. 
On the line with us now, Paul Saussier, who is Director of the Office of Aging and Disability Services with Maine's Department of Health and Human Services. Paul, thanks for giving us a call, and I understand you would like to talk about the Respite for Me program. What is it, and how does it help family caregivers? Yes, thank you, Jennifer, for having me. Uh, one of the bright spots uh, in these difficult times is a new program that um, was just implemented last fall uh, in partnership with the Area Agencies on Aging and the Ombudsman Program and many others called Respite for Me. Uh, it's a new caregiver support program uh, that was part of Governor Mills's main jobs and recovery plan. Um, the pandemic uh, made caregiving even harder than it already is uh, in, a, in at least a couple of ways. Uh, people who were uh, perhaps already feeling isolated and at home uh, doing caregiving became more isolated during the pandemic. Uh, and then we know that there are many people who chose to um, to do caregiving full-time during the pandemic, either because uh, their loved one uh, could not get the formal services that they needed, or they made a decision to bring somebody home from a long-term care facility to keep them uh, safer during the pandemic. So uh, definitely exacerbated things uh, for caregivers, and uh, we're very pleased that uh, with the legislature's support, uh, we're able to offer this new uh, program. The, the program offers grants of up to $2,000 uh, to Maine families who are caring for a family member at home. Uh, and in general, this is for um, uh, unpaid caregivers, people who are not otherwise receiving payment for the care. Um, this grant is, we, we have other respite programs, which I can also talk about, but this one is what's, what's uh, we think, um, new and improved about it is that there's greater flexibility in how the caregiver can use the benefit. Um, they can certainly use it for respite, uh, as the name would suggest, but they can also uh, use it to receive counseling, uh, training, uh, legal and financial guidance um, services to maintain their own health, such as occupational or physical therapy. Um, the other innovation with this program, and, and the ombudsman was, was really key to uh, this, was uh, helping us select a, uh, a national uh, caregiver assessment and referral tool, um, and we are piloting that tool in, in Respite for Me. So this is a, a structured way to talk with caregivers about their needs, their stresses, their, their burden, uh, so that a, a tailored um, set of supports can be created for them. Um, Paul, how, how would somebody um, access the services from Respite for me? How, how, who do you call? You call the Area Agencies on Aging. Uh, there are five of them in Maine, uh, but they have a centralized 800 number that you can use. It's 877 um, 877- Three five three three seven seven one, and uh, they'll do a phone um, consultation with you to assess not only for respite for me, but for other respite programs that are offered through the area agencies on aging. Um, so that is the one-stop shop for uh, caregiver support in Maine. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for calling in. That's Paul Saussier with the Maine DHHS Office of Aging and Disability Services. And speaking of Maine's agencies on aging, calling us now Megan Walton, who is the CEO of the Southern Maine Agency on Aging. Megan, thanks so much for calling in. 
Just so fantastic to have you spotlight this need today because we often think that caregivers are invisible. And so we just appreciate the opportunity to talk about their needs today. I want to ask you, you heard what Paul Saucier talked about. He talked about the Respite for Me program. I know that the agencies on aging um, offer so many programs. What else is available for caregivers that you would like people to know about? Thanks, Jennifer. Well, we just really want caregivers to know that the area agencies on aging are here as the focal point for resources, services, and information related to aging and to caregiving. And so we really think of our services in three um, categories. The first is making sure that we're just taking care of the caregiver, whether they need a one-on-one appointment, whether they um, need to take a Tai Chi class or something for their own self-care, they can do that here. Um, And then second, to make sure they have training and education. Like Brenda was saying, a lot of these roles are intense and there's just additional support, training, and education we offer here. And then, of course, the third is community. It's so important that caregivers have other caregivers to talk to. So we have support groups that we offer as agencies on aging. We have a Facebook group here where folks can just plug in and say, hey, I'm having a rough day, a monthly newsletter. Um, That community component is so important so that folks know they're not alone. Well, thank you so much for calling in Megan Walton with the Southern Maine Agency on Aging. Uh, I'm going to go to a caller from Saco. Here's Anne-Marie. Hi, Anne-Marie. Go ahead. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. I am a full-time caregiver for my 85-year-old mother. I'm going on year number three, and um, I am also um, thankful that after a year and a half of taking care of her full-time that she uh, got to the top of the list of the the home-based home and community-based caregiver program. So I am paid for a fraction of the time that I'm with her. Um, But I don't just care for her. I'm a very significant advocate in the care, what's called the care economy. And so I've had the privilege of meeting and discussing these problems with many people around the country who are involved in the work. And one of the things that is really um, a barrier, and and my heart breaks for the gal who just called about taking care of her husband, she should be able to quit her job. She should be able to quit her job and be paid to take care of her husband at home. And when we have millions of dollars that are being um, directed towards long-term care and nursing homes and focusing on funneling our seniors or our disabled loved ones into the facilities instead of enabling families and friends to take care of them at home, we have completely misdirected our energies and our finances. So, and a number of other, you know, um, initiatives that, that I'm working on in a care economy includes making visible nationwide the caregivers all on one day so that we can speak our voices and really um, help our government understand what the support is that's needed. So I hope that those folks that are online, I'm so grateful um, for the folks that are on here discussing this, understand that we are the labor force. We are the labor force for care. Anne-Marie, thank you. I'm pretty certain our guests today, too, very well understand that. Um, Brenda, what what would you say to this idea that people need to be compensated for the work they're doing at home as though it were in a facility? 
Oh, I agree. I think family caregivers should be paid and there are opportunities for payment of caregivers under both the main care funded home care programs and the state funded home based care programs. So um, in fact, we worked on legislation um, with uh, a couple of years ago that enabled spouses to be paid um, uh, under the Section 19 uh, nursing facility waiver. So we, yes, we think family members should be paid, but would it be equal to what they, perhaps what they could make in their professional career? Perhaps not, but there are opportunities. And again, people can call us or the agent, excuse me, one of the area agencies on aging to find out about opportunities to be paid. Noel. And I think one of the things that Anne-Marie is also referring to is that the need for us to look at caregiving from multiple uh, perspectives and look at multiple solutions and home and community-based services being one of those, I think. And that's what that's what I thought I heard uh, Anne-Marie also talk about, among other things. And, and I think, you know, keeping in mind what the pandemic has taught us, um, it's it's also quite um, quite important for us to look at home and community based services as an opportunity uh, for for caregivers and 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 to kind of invest in that as well. Janet on Facebook says, "Grew up in a four generation house, raised my kids and oldest grandchild in one. It's not easy, but has its rewards." Aunt Eileen had a stroke and mom had Alzheimer's. I wish there had been more help. We had hospice care at the end. God bless caregivers. Um, so Brenda, I think what Janet is saying is is sort of encapsulating everything that it's really, really hard, but there are also rewards. Yeah, I think so. Um, and again, it's just, I think it's so important that we really think about how we can reach family caregivers early, uh, how as a state, we can do more around uh, public service announcements and ads to let families know where help is available, to let them know about the aging and disability resource centers that are available through the area agencies on aging, and that we make sure that we provide funding to be able to expand uh, the ADRCs over time, and just really focusing on assessing family caregiver needs so that we can find resources and ways to support them in what can be a very difficult, but at the same time, rewarding journey. Because at the end of it, at least you know that you've really helped somebody through a difficult time in their life and that you've made a difference. Um, and I think that's very important. And again, I see many really amazing families that people that I will never forget, so. We are gonna take another quick break. This is Maine Calling, we'll be right back back. I'm Jennifer Rooks, and you are listening to Maine Calling. Today on the program, we are talking about family caregivers. My guests, Noelle Bonham, State Director of AARP, and Brenda Gallant, Executive Director of Maine's Long-Term Care Ombudsman Program. You can join our conversation if you're quick, 1-800-399-3566. Again, if you're quick, send a brief email to talk at mainepublic.org or find us on social media. On the line with us now is Valerie Sada, who is Chief Nurse Administrator and Associate Professor at the Husson University School of Nursing. Valerie, why don't I start by asking you, if someone finds themselves in a caregiving position um, for the first time, if they're early in this and, and are listening to whether they're caring for a, a parent or a spouse, what are your tips for how to think about the work that you, that the journey you're about to embark on and the work you're gonna do day to day. 
Well, thanks for having me, and I I think this is such an important topic in today's environment. Um, The first thing I would suggest for families, if you find yourself in that situation for the very first time, is explore your options. And the best way to do that here in the state of Maine is really to reach out to your area agency on aging. A couple tips as you're talking to your providers about what you might need is make sure you uh, let them know if you're working. Um, Do you have a full-time, part-time? What kind of uh, financial implications will your caregiving experience have on your family? Second thing, I would definitely tell them uh, what you think you might need for help. I know that many caregivers are put in a situation where there's a lot of medical conditions and just don't know how to start. So all of that information is really helpful to the person on the other end of the phone who's going to be providing you support. Um, And then make sure you ask for help from your friends and family. Other people in your life probably have had caregiving experiences. And many people, uh, the informal network in Maine is very strong um, also. So make sure that you're asking your colleagues and friends, including your work colleagues, who may have had that experience. Valerie, let me ask you this. We talked earlier about um, some of the ways in which the pandemic has affected the the broader situation, uh, the the workforce shortages, things like that. But the pandemic has also opened up a new new world in medicine. And um, there have been, frankly, a lot of technological innovations in the last few years. And I'm wondering, from your perspective, which of those are the most helpful for people who are caregivers? Yeah, I think uh, we are in the future of healthcare uh, delivery in the home care and the community-based setting. So I know as my mother uh, was being provided care at home, a couple apps that, that they have out now, now that are very helpful are things like medication reminder tracking apps that you can just make sure that your parent or loved one uh, is taking their medications. Electronic medical records are going to revolutionize our ability to have to tell our stories 50 times to different providers. Um, Those can be very helpful and useful, making sure that you uh, uh, are able to uh, get current and up-to-date information to your healthcare network. Another uh, thing that's really exciting, I think um, I find that um, some of the home management tasks now, I, I, I know we laugh sometimes when we talk about things like Alexa and all of those things. Those can be very helpful, especially, for example, making phone calls, um, making sure that you can turn on lights in the house. Uh, safety can be very important for caregiving situations. And then, of course, lastly, social connection. I, uh, I often remember when I was caring for my mother listening to Maine Public Radio, for example, on a Saturday night when I was waiting for the next phase of my caregiving experience, just listening to music. Uh, it makes a huge difference in quality of life, especially in a rural state like ours when you're providing care and often feel isolated. And Valerie, I was thinking about a member of my family had some cameras installed so that when he mm-hmm. had to leave the home, he had a sense of a, a peace of mind that he could look at his phone, you know, from the, the checkout line at the grocery store and see that his loved one was, was doing okay. 
Yes, and um, if you are employed, uh, those kind of technologies, for example, you can get right on your laptop at work. So it's always nice to be able to keep an eye out. Um, we use those technologies and have for many years with our children. Uh, for example, baby monitors have been very popular. But modifying them for caregiving situations can also be very helpful and kind of relieve and create peace of mind. Um, all of those technologies are moving dramatically into the future. I think exploring those, I agree with the panels that have been discussing about funding for those types of supports, uh, critically important as we go into the future and technologies become more advanced, that there is support for families to be able to get those technologies when they need it. Noel. Oh, I think you might be on mute. I can't hear you. <laughs> Speaking of technologies. Okay, go ahead, Noel. Um, I, I just want to highlight something that Valerie mentioned, uh, which I think is very important. We are you know predominantly a rural state, and most of our you know um, residents who are older and live in rural parts of the state or caregivers who live in rural parts of the state, don't have access to services like they're not living in like more active you know more populated hubs and that's also another challenge which which is particularly relevant for a state like maine valerie sada thank you so much for calling in valerie with the school of nursing at hassan university we're going to go to paul who's calling from falmouth hi paul go ahead hi jennifer thank you so much for having this program um i wanted to mention that um my brother who lives in quebec and uh, his wife are taking care of um, her mother, I mean, I'm sorry, her father, and um, he's elderly and requires a lot of nursing care. And they have a program there where um, now and then they can um, go away for a few days, and her father stays at a long-term care facility for just three or four days, sort of as a, um, a visiting sort of thing. And I'm just wondering if there's any program like that in Maine or New England or if that has been thought of here. Thank you. I'll take it. Yeah. Brenda, do you know the answer to that? Yes. Yes. People can get respite in a long-term care facility under main care, home care programs. Yes. Wow. And how, how commonly used is that? I think, you know, I, I'm not sure of the prevalence of it, but I do, I do know that in talking with my staff and preparing for this, you know, it is, it is used commonly. So, but I don't know what the data is around it but it is, a, it is an option for people. Here's an email from Michelle. Are there any care facilities in Maine that provide gluten-free meals? This is a big hurdle. Celiac disease is a disability and covered by the U.S. Disabilities Act. A, a specific question, but Brenda, I'll put it back to you again. Well, yes. I mean, uh, nursing homes are required to provide special diets, and they do have dietitians. excuse me, dietitians. So yes, if somebody comes in with a, a special diet request or need, it needs to be accommodated. I'm going to circle back to the AARP report, the reason we're doing this program today as opposed to another day. And Noel, I want to ask you, it's a, it's a very long report, very in-depth, and covers the whole nation. But what is it that you want people to take away from it? What do you hope the message is when people are talking about that report, to talking about this program in a week, in a month, in a year? that they keep in mind that family caregivers are truly the backbone of our long-term care system in this country i mentioned this already that uh, when it comes to family caregiving it's not just 
the time, uh, the, the burden of time that family caregivers have to take on, but it's also financial burden, civic burden, social burden, burden to their health and well-being. And I think that's a really key important thing. And the third thing is that we need to figure out a way to support family caregivers. It's 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 urgent, it's critical that we find ways to support caregivers in our state, um, across the country, but definitely in our state. And Brenda, I know that you, uh, for the most part, work in the realm of public policy, and you know what programs are out there, you know how to connect agencies with people, and you know what people's rights are. But I'm going to step back and ask you a more personal question. If you know someone who's a caregiver, if you have a friend or a neighbor who is caring for a spouse or an older loved one, what personally can one person do to support that other person without being intrusive and without making more work for them? But what what is truly supportive? Well, that's a really good question. I think just asking them what assistance they might need, what support they might need. Can you help out in some way? Do an errand, visit, uh, just reach out and give them the opportunity to just share their concerns and just be a supportive presence. Uh, I think that's critically important, that it can be a very lonely uh, journey if you don't have adequate supports, but I think that's the way to, to go about it. Another thing that I would add to what Brenda said is that the, the, that um, supporting the caregiver, right, and and particularly like not not just the the person who's receiving the caregiving, but finding ways to support the caregiver, I think is 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 what Brenda is actually talking about. But I just want to make sure that we kind of drive home the point that the caregiver needs so much support. Yeah. And and Noel, what do you what does AARP project for the future? We have these great big numbers in today's report about how you know the 2.9 billion dollars worth of care that's being provided right now in Maine through family caregiving, the value of that family caregiving, is that number going to increase in the future? What do the demographics tell us? What does the reality on the ground tell us? We know that that number is going to increase for sure. I mean, if for nothing else, it's just even look based on the based on the the cost of caregiving, you know, with 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 the dearth of direct care workers, the the number of hours went up for caregivers because they had to provide more caregiving hours. And then the the intensity of caregiving also increased because the same support structures that existed before the pandemic, they don't exist at the same level anymore. So all of those, you know, when you start thinking about peeling the the, the onion, to, so to speak, and peeling the layers of this complex issue, it's only becoming more and more complex. And I think it's going to be exasperated quite a bit. And, and Brenda, as, as um, again, people are listening to this and more and more of us will find ourselves in this position when maybe even we're not there now, but we'll be in the future, what do people need to know to best take advantage of what's out there for them and to best take care of themselves? Well, I think to reach out for information and, and try to think about if you have an older family member to try to talk with them about their wishes, try to do some planning, reach out to the, again, to the area agencies on aging. You can reach out to the ombudsman program. 
but try to look forward and do planning. And I just want to say, um, uh, sort of as a follow-up to, to Noel's comments, that while uh, the direct care worker shortage really deserves our attention and Maine is doing really some incredible workforce initiatives to bring more people into this work uh, to meet the need on the increasing demand, we also need to have a parallel effort to support family members because there, as Noel has pointed out, there is a huge economic benefit to the care provided by family caregivers and really early intervention and expanding supports through adult day programs, respite, expanding technology uh, through home care programs, et cetera. All of these services and reaching people early will be critical. So it's really, we have to have an equal effort. So not only to look at the direct care workforce, but to look at what families need to keep doing this. And they really are the backbone of the long-term services and support system. So I just wanna make that point. And, and Brenda, it sounds to me as though you feel as though maybe one, one part of the policy, public policy is, is right now being focused on more than the other. Well, I think because of the, the um, extreme shortage that we had you know, around nursing home care, and home care and unstaffed hours is a huge problem for people. But I think, and I think Maine, what is encouraging to me is that Maine is really moving in the direction around the implementation of the Respite for Me program. We're taking a look at adult day services. There's the establishment of the cabinet on aging that will really be looking at how to support older people in remaining in their communities and looking at their needs. I mean, so we're really moving in this, this direction, but I think we need to really continue in that direction and really expand our efforts. But I am encouraged in the direction we're going, but we need to keep it up and, and really make it equal to what we're doing around the direct care workforce. Noel. And, and, and you know, it was, it was really nice to have Megan on the show. The, we, have, we are so fortunate to have amazing area agencies on aging in our state who do so much. And you mentioned that already, Jennifer, earlier in the show. And, and the other thing that I just learned and I think is relevant, especially for folks who are calling in and wondering, you know, how to reach for help, uh, reach out for help, um, and kind of going back to Paul's question as well, Paul, the caller from Falmouth, um, is that they need to, that common number will connect them to their local um, area agency on aging. All right, and we'll make sure and, and make sure that's on our Facebook page and our website. Thank you both for being here today. Brenda Gallant, Executive Director of the Maine Long-Term Care Ombudsman Program. Noelle Bonham, the State Director for AARP Maine. Today's sound engineer, KG Akimaladun. Maine Calling is produced by Cindy Hahn and Jonathan Smith. Tomorrow on the program, a conversation about the impacts of the pandemic on who we are on our psyche. I'm Jennifer Rooks, and you have been listening to Maine Calling on Maine Public Radio.